Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Who was John Keel? Was his reporting on paranormal events reliable? And what is a window area? Hello and welcome to the 841st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben and those questions came from my co-host, partner in the Paranormal Adventures, and dad... Paul, uh, and we will certainly keep us on an even keel today, and uh, <laughs> we welcome your calls. The number is 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere, or you can email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or contact us by Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And unless there be any doubt, we're actually here live today after two weeks of um, reruns because of the two Western Eastern Easter dates. And uh, I, at this point, my kingdom for a barber, since I'm beginning to look like one of the creatures we talk about on the show. Well, yeah, just don't don't copy me and shave your head, because then, then no one will be able to tell us apart. No, no, that's true. Anyway, uh, with us via Skype today is Brent Rains, who has investigated and researched UFOs since 1967. That's the year I graduated from grammar school, Brent. Uh, the editor of, the, of uh, Alternate Perceptions magazine, he has written several books, including John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and The Ongoing Mysteries, which will be our subject today. Brent has traveled extensively across the U.S. and Canada to interview witnesses and researchers. Assisted by, <clears throat> by his interaction with the First Nations, Brent takes a global and historical perspective on UFO studies, and he interrelates parapsychology, sh- <clears throat> excuse me, shamanism, <clears throat> Jungian archetypes and ufology. So, Brent Rains, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Paul. It's uh, a pleasure and an honor to be your guest today. Oh, hey, it's a pleasure to have you. So, let's start off with something uh, relatively or seemingly simple and broad. Um, so, Brent, give us an overview of who John Keel was, uh, along with how and why he got involved in paranormal research. Well, John Keel, as a young man, had a lot of uh, lot of interest in in uh, space, and and uh, he was interested in fourteen items, and and he was a amateur magician. In fact, he dreamed early on as a, as a young child of being a stage magician, and he was always practicing different uh, sleight of hand tricks and things. But uh, at age fourteen, he loved reading. He was uh, he called himself a reading machine. And uh, on such a variety of subjects, he was interested also in chemistry and science. And and uh, so at age 14, in a local uh, in Perry, New York, there was the Perry Herald. And uh, this uh, editor saw Keel as being someone who might like to uh, try his hand at, at writing. He seemed to have a lot of a lot of reading experience. And and uh, and so he let him write a column called "Scraping the Keel." It was a weekly feature. <laughs> he wasn't always on an even keel, and uh, he uh, he would uh, make two dollars a week at that. And so he was uh, encouraged. That writing was what he really wanted to do, and he could write on on all kinds of different subjects. And uh, he said he got his humor from his mom. Uh, he was always uh, you know, writing humorous things, and he liked science fiction. And uh, so he just uh, had a great time, and and. Uh, then when he was, you know, age 17, he actually decided he wanted to make a career of it. And he thought that uh, the Big Apple, New York City, was the place to go. So uh, one day he uh, he was told that uh, he was to go out and work the fields, you know, and uh, help with uh, some farm work. And he really didn't want to. And he told his mom that he was he was leaving. And this was 17. He had like, you know, 
75 cents in his pocket, started hitchhiking his way to New York City. He went down the road, and she thought, oh, he'll be back. And um, after two days, he finally made it to New York City. He became an editor for a poetry uh, publication for about two years, and he wrote little uh, things for radio stations and such, and anything he could get a job at. Um, but his interest in, in unusual phenomena uh, actually stemmed from uh, when he was seven years old. He was in an interview with uh, Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, they call oh, yeah, him. Uh, a good friend of ours, one yes. of our guest co-hosts. <laughs> he did uh, an interview uh, with John Keel um, somewhere around the mid-70s, and, and uh, John told him that when he was seven that he had seen a sphere of light with his uh, stepfather and and his mother they were driving through an area of new york state and at first i thought it was a barn on fire up on a on a hill and uh, his his stepfather was driving pulled over and they watched and after a while he said this big barn-sized round sphere rose up into the air and at that point they they knew it wasn't uh you know a mere barn on fire this was something really anomalous and as I recall, then it just sort of took off into the, the night sky. And uh, when he was 10 years old, uh, people in his rural area uh, around Perry, New York, where some of the farmers were reporting a gorilla that some people had seen crossing a nearby country road. So everybody uh, got worried, and, and people went out with their, their shotguns and and uh, started looking for this thing. But as, as often happens, it, uh, you know, it stopped happening, and, and, and that was it, and people after a while forgot about it. But, of course, these these kind of things figure prominently in, uh, in a lot of stories that we've heard about Bigfoot and other cryptids over the years. They, they come and go. And uh, so, anyway, that uh, that plus the fact that, that Keel felt early on around adolescence that uh, he had sort of psychic awareness that there was a poltergeist in his grandparents' uh farm and he in the room that he stayed at there would be knocking sounds on the wall and he tried to develop a code and communicate with him and then after he had hitchhiked to new york city he uh he was had an apartment just off of times square and claimed that uh he had a kind of illumination a spiritual illumination experience where he suddenly knew the answers to all the mysteries of life and uh he was just overwhelmed there was an illumination in his room and uh he was quite startled by this, but by the next morning, um, he'd felt he had this, like this download of information, but, uh, it was hard to put all, all of that he had, uh, knew the night before. He just had little bits and pieces, and he was quite, quite disappointed, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, he kind of developed the, uh, an atheistic point of view. Um, initially, he was, you know, kind of skeptical of many, many stories in spite of the experiences he had. And he, back around 1951, he got uh, drafted into the military and they saw that he was a writer and they could use him over in Germany at a popular, you know, radio station, foreign radio network. And uh, the German people, I understand, really enjoyed his programs. He would uh, do travel, you know, suggest travel uh, places to go for travelers and, and, uh, he actually spent uh, the night alone, I think, in uh, one of the pyramids in, in Egypt and a live broadcast. And it was Frankenstein's castle in Germany. He sent out a uh, one of his correspondents out in the field and was uh, telling the stories of Frankenstein and such. And uh, 
and uh, they had someone sneak up on him in the dark and startle on live broadcast the, the, this guy. But um, pretty good radio, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 1954, while he was in Egypt um, studying the pyramids himself, he was quite intrigued by different cultures. Uh, he saw a uh, another UFO, uh, a metallic disc-shaped-looking craft uh, with a dome on top, the classic flying saucer, uh, in the upper Nile uh, over the, uh, what he called the Aswan, Aswan Dam, um, just hovering there. And then again, after a while, it, it took off at a high acceleration. And so um, he, later that year, 1954, he ventured across... Uh, uh, you know, went to Baghdad and, and through India and Himalayas and and uh, eventually ended up in Singapore uh, the following year and uh, then wrote a book called uh, Jadu, Mysteries of the Orient. And he went in, you know, using his knowledge of magic and, and he wanted to expose a lot of the, uh, the fakery that went on, you know, the so-called holy men who would uh, charge tourists so much money to... Uh, do various feats, and he learned the secret of uh, uh, a lot of their their tricks being buried alive, and uh, the Indian rope trick, and so on. But then there were things that he experienced once again that he couldn't explain. Um, he realized that there were some genuine uh, Buddhist monks who were using uh, telepathy. Um, there was one gentleman who was considered a very prominent holy man that Keel had been looking for, and the guy ended up. Uh, locating Keel uh, on on a trail that he was hiking, and uh, Keel was quite startled to, for this turn of events. The guy finds him instead of him finding this man, and and uh, he offered to demonstrate his ability to read Keel's mind. And so Keel said, "Okay." Um, started concentrating on a pair of boots he was wearing, and, and the man said, "Oh, come on, Mister Keel, you can do better than that." <laughs> It's your boots, you know, really? <laughs> so then he tried something else, and again, the guy hit it right off. So um, he asked him how he did it, and he said, well, it would take years to uh, for you to achieve this 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 uh, particular skill, uh, but I can give you a general idea. And he described, like, going down a path, and you watch for different things to appear along this path, and uh, that was a, a very generalized idea of what he did with his, his consciousness. So anyway, um, Keel wrote this book, and it was, you know, to reveal a lot of the the crafts, the tricks that uh, a lot of these uh, Jadu artists or uh, so-called holy men would, would use. But he also, uh, you know, observed some things he couldn't explain. There was also one time he was in a temple with a guy who claimed that he could call in uh, spirits. And suddenly there was a breeze that came through, blew out a candle, as I recall, and uh, there was a three-legged uh, wooden stool out of one of the corners of the temple that started coming out. And oh, also there was like a rapping sound on the ceiling. And anyway, it circled around Keel, and he reached out his hands, looking for the string, and he couldn't find it. And then it went to another corner, and then the session was over, and he went over and examined the, uh, the wooden stool and... Uh, couldn't find any any uh, tricks of the trade that he was familiar with, and so he wondered about that. And uh, and he also, uh, while he was on this journey, there was the Yeti, 
and he had heard stories from various villagers he was going through, and uh, there seemed to be one that was following just ahead of him, and he had seen tracks, he had heard this strange call that they were the villagers were saying, that's the Yeti, and he did see something at the end of a lake that uh, was you know, hair covered and looked like it could have been a Yeti, but he couldn't honestly say that it was. It could have been a bear, he said. Uh, but, uh, you know, he was open-minded about it, especially, you know, going back to New York, uh, age 10 and the gorilla that people were seeing that, you know, everybody talks about, you know, when these things happened back then, they'd, uh, they'd say, oh, it was a, uh, a gorilla that escaped from a, uh, a zoo or something, you know. And there never would be uh, the report to confirm it. So we're talking about a sort of paranormal renaissance man here. Yeah, yeah, and, and he was very much into Charles Fort's writings, uh, 14, uh, you know, the Book of the Dam and Low and such. And yeah. Early on, and he remembers in 1948, uh, uh, soon after the whole flying saucer uh, craze began, uh, being in a room with about 40 people, a small room where people were arguing over whether the government was interfering and not telling us the truth about these things. And he says they've been arguing ever since. Hmm. Uh, can we fast forward a bit just uh, in the interest of time to, to the uh, Mothman era? I think most people associate John Keel with the uh, Mothman events of the 60s and certainly his book, uh, The Mothman Prophecies. Can you uh, enlighten us in, in that regard? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I wanted to pursue uh, John Keel because he had been such an influence in my own uh, investigative work uh, and so I, I had, you know initiated correspondence with him back in October 69 and and um, I wanted to find out you know there was criticisms about uh, errors in some of his work and, and such and we exchanged newsletters uh, uh, where he had a, a magazine called Anomaly, a newsletter called Anomaly that he sent out uh, free of charge to to uh, exchange partners or exchange like I had a mimeograph newsletter called Sauceritis and and uh, he admitted to uh, the fact that there were there were errors in in a number of his works, and he tried to correct them in Anomaly. And he wrote to me about how, uh, you know, one of his books, I think Operation Trojan Horse, uh, there were a number of glaring errors, and he tried to get it corrected. And uh, uh, they, you know, I sent him the galleys. They made corrections and sent it to him, and then they they didn't correct them even after he'd corrected the galleys. Yeah. Something to be said for print-on-demand. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, then it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. But I won't say they didn't make errors, uh, you know, because he covered a lot of material. And um, I had, you know. But what interested me was the fact that uh, I'd corresponded with an Aki Frenzen from uh, Sweden and his, his friend Hakan Blankovic of the Archives for the Unexplained one of the largest UFO 14 archives and libraries, I think, out there. And they collect a lot of material from worldwide. And uh, anyway, Aki Frazen was, didn't really know anything that much about uh, the Mothman, but he, he, he thought it sounded interesting, uh, what Kiel was working on. And, and so he had helped Kiel with uh, information about Swedish uh, mystery aircraft, back from like the 1930s for a chapter that Keel was writing for Operation Trojan Horse. And so he wanted to uh, go to uh, West Virginia himself as a vacation. So he took several weeks 
off to go there. And he, uh, right off the bat, he had a letter from John Keel, a letter of introduction. He said that opened many doors uh, while he was in Point Pleasant in the surrounding area. He met Mary Heyer, the newspaper reporter who had helped Keel a great deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, about 30 of the Mothman witnesses, and um, he said that uh, he felt that they were very traumatized by their experiences, that... Um, they often talked about the one thing that really stood out to them was the shining eyes, and uh, they were almost like a hypnotic effect on a, on a number of the people. And and uh, he talked with people who, family and, and friends, who uh, knew these people before their experience, and now since their experience, instead they were they were changed. Yeah, uh, it was you know they, they were very traumatic, and they he noticed. They would smoke a lot, and uh, even though he had given up smoking, he started smoking again just listening to their stories. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, there was uh, – now, that and, and also I, I connected with Dan Drazen, who's mentioned several times in Mothman Prophecies, yeah, and he, yeah. he went down there in 67. He was a documentary filmmaker. He was going to actually uh, – do a a documentary for PBS. PBS at the time was interested, and he went down. He met Mary Heyer. Uh, he even had later kind of a he felt it was a premonition experience uh, related to her passing because they connected real strongly and felt uh, he said she was quite psychic and that uh, even felt that they were somehow maybe uh, as I recall like a past life connection, you know. Mm. But. Um, well, I remember in uh, 08 when we first went on the air, uh, one of the f- first people we wanted to get to know was John Keel. And um, we were in touch, and we, but then, then, of course, he, he died uh, translated, as we say, the following year. And uh, we never got to know him or had him on the air. Uh, however, I, I remember in 1966, I, I was like 12 and, and 13, I would... Uh, my mother would point out stories about, oh, that giant bird is back in West Virginia again. In the Hartford Current in Connecticut, where I grew up, and uh, I just, it all came back, you know, when when uh, whether the, when I read his book and uh, all sorts of uh, other research took place. So we're going to move on to some questions, if we could. I know you haven't uh, given us, you know, been able to complete the full story, but we would refer people to your book. Uh, do you have your book uh, with you? Sure. Yeah, sure, just uh, right. hold it up to the uh, camera. There right you go. Here. Yeah, and it's available. Uh, we'll give you a chance to talk about it later, but it's available on Amazon. Uh, yes, that's where I got mine. And we have a, a very faithful listener in Bogota, Colombia. Actually, he he sends in such such great questions almost every week. He's almost like an honorary guest <laughs> co-host. This is Peter from Bogota, and he um, you, you really got him cooking here, uh, Brandy. He's sending a bunch of questions. So okie dokie. So we might as well start right at the very beginning. Um, so Peter asks first. Uh, in the course of writing your Keel book, did you discover any interesting untold MIB cases? As in Men in M- Black. Yeah. yeah. Ah, well, I do, um, you know, this was, I wanted to point out in the book how he influenced my life and a lot of other people around the world. And so I did interviews with people who do Keel and to show, you know, how um, that influence uh, affected their work and how they interpreted their experiences, including Rosemary Giles, who uh, actually uh, I interviewed and, and wrote the forward uh, to my book. Oh, yeah. Dear friend of ours, another guest co-host. 
mm-hmm. of the show. Yeah. And uh, and she helped me tremendously. Uh, you know, uh, she made suggestions of people, in fact, who uh, I should interview in addition since she knew Keel and, and would uh, uh, meet with him in New York for lunch and, and also uh, uh, attended his 14 society meetings in New York they had from the 80s to sometime in the 90s. Um, but anyway... Um, So uh, Men in Black. Uh, the Men in Black. Yeah, I had been studying the whole Men in Black thing, and and uh, I came across some 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 good cases over the years that I wanted to include in in the book. Um, as far as anything really new that that Keel had worked on the Men in Black, I you know I I covered the fact that he had a great deal of interest. He was even in looking at um, uh, a number of things like the uh, the fact that he found. Um, suspected that that gypsies uh were a group of people who sometimes as well as native americans uh had a lot of these experiences he felt sometimes that uh gypsies were actually some of the mibs and he was hoping one day to actually uh uh maybe track down get you know sometimes he was just minutes away from having visited a house where an mib visitation had had occurred you know the men in black, the yeah, uh, concept, yeah. And so he, you know, he never did a have have that experience. He figured, you know, trying to catch a flying saucer, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they'd they'd leave the ground before he could get there. But you know, maybe somebody driving around in a black Cadillac or something, he might be able to uh, run down. Now he did have the experience. He claimed uh, a location called Mount Misery on uh, Long Island, where he got a call and was told to. Uh, Go out there, and he got there, and there was a black Cadillac with tinted windows, and he could see these two uh, dark-suited Oriental men inside, and he was getting out of his car to go talk with them, and the car started moving off, so he got back in his car and, and followed them, and uh, and uh, and it went around a corner, and it was a dead end, and there was no black Cadillac. Wow. And, uh, huh. you know, he wondered what happened here, yeah, so he exactly. felt it was it was a, he felt it was a demonstration uh, that uh, there was something to these MIB stories. Yeah. Now, what's the next question, Ben? Already, so, Peter. Yeah. Peter writes to us. By the same token, are you aware of any classic MIB cases uh, that have appeared since the 2009 Niagara Falls case? Um. Well, I've got uh, I've got some some cases in. In my book, uh, there uh, there have been some that have occurred since since then. Uh, it seems to me like you know the activity has kind of slowed down that that nature. Although uh, hmm. Alan Greenfield, who's been in this for a long time, uh, has uh, told me that uh, it's still there. You know, you just got to be looking at the right places. Um, you know, he, uh, in fact, he was the one who, uh, John Keel had, had written me years and years ago that, uh, had made him aware of uh, how the MIB turned up in many other frames of reference, including, um, uh, witchcraft. There were a lot of accounts in that area, he said. Could, could you give, uh, just for the sake of listeners who may not know, uh, quite, uh, might, might not be familiar what we're talking about, the MIBs or the men in black, what do they actually do? Just for the background of, of the listeners. Well, a lot of the times they, um, you know, after someone has seen a UFO, uh, they report that they've been 
uh, intimidated by someone who approached them and told them to, uh, you know, shut their mouth about the uh, what they saw, and uh, they would often feel that it was someone from the government. Um, in other cases, though, the the people who were silenced or these people attempted to silence would also uh, demonstrate that maybe they were pot alien or have sort of an unusual paranormal component to the the experience. And Keel was very very interested in of course in, in that. And uh, in my book, you'll read where Keel actually described to uh, the well-known writer Brad Steiger mm. uh, years ago how, um, you know, he was introducing Brad, who had been, you know, at the time pretty much uh, still following the mainstream nuts and bolts ET perspective uh, about the psychic phenomena. And one time he claimed, uh, John Keel claimed, that... Um, he heard a knock on his door, and then these three men in black came into his apartment, and instead of just opening the door, they just walked through it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then they asked him if, you know, what, wanted proof that they were aliens, so they reached under his uh, sink into a, a cabinet there and pulled out a, a full bottle of bleach, and all three took uh, sips of it until <laughs> they emptied the bottle. And um, so I guess Keel is convinced this was pretty pretty weird. All right, well, on that tasty note, we're going to uh, take our bottom-of-the-hour break here. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with Brent Rains and more about John Keel, so stick with us. Hi, Parrotheads. This is Joe Callahan, your Mater D in the Tiki Bar every Tuesday night from 6 to 7. One full hour of nothing but Jimmy Buffett music. The Tiki Bar is brought to you by attorney Bob Lauder and by the Carew Investment Group. Owen Radio. Owen Local and live at 99.5 FM. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WON. And uh, where our guest today is Brent Rains, author, researcher of uh, long, long experience. And uh, we're talking about his uh, work uh, on the biog- biography of John Keel, who was a uh, New York uh, sort of renaissance man of the paranormal, uh, known as a journalist, uh, and uh, probably most famous for his, his book, The Mothman Prophecies, made into the 2002 film with Richard Gere and Laura Linney. Uh, one of my favorite films. I guess it was a flop, but I mean, it, it was um, it's one a of the classic, things, I think. It's kind of like one of those movies you go back to and you're like, it's a cult oh, movie. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I think it's great. The concepts are amazing. So speaking of some of the concepts, uh, Brent, uh, I've always been fascinated. And the, the, the movie bore very little resemblance to the actual book, I think. This mainly the concepts. I think you can the the journalist uh, uh, John Klein. I think would certainly be equivalent, I guess, to John Keel. Uh, I suppose, and um, you know Woody Durenberger, the guy who ran into Indrid Cold. You know the alien on the highway, and uh, that might have been the, the fellow you know who lived in the house in the rural area. Anyway, uh, I think it's very interesting that. And Keel's book, he talks about the men in black, uh, or the equivalent thereof, uh, people showing up. And we actually, uh, when we were in Point Pleasant in 03, uh, Ben wasn't working with me quite yet, but we were uh, actually uh, talking with some witnesses who were, were children at the time and, and grew up. And, 
and they, they uh, confirmed a couple of the stories that, that John Keel had had told uh, about, for example, the people in uh, after the sightings of, of the Mothman and UFOs would take place, uh, that uh, people would show up in Air Force uniforms, and uh, veterans would would realize that they were, they were wearing insignia in the wrong places and, and this sort of thing. Something was wrong, uh, and then incidents wherein people supposedly would look at an ashtray or some ordinary everyday item and uh, ask to keep it as if they had some valuable antiques. I mean, what, what, what is that something Keel was looking into or did you find? I mean, that, that was really, I thought, uh, rather fascinating. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of things um, that were very, very strange. Uh, and, and I got to interview a, a couple of people um, you know, in, in recent years who hadn't told their story, uh, really, and, and, and going back to that, that period of time that had uh, uh, experience with some sort of thing like Mothman. And I, I visited Point Pleasant myself in 1976, and I, I uh, you know, I, I met some of the, the witnesses, and uh, including Linda Skyberry and her mom and mm-hmm. dad. Yeah. And uh, I also called up uh, a Virginia Thomas, who was described in uh, Keel's Mothman Prophecies and, and uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space. Mm. And, uh, and she, uh, her story was, was one that, uh, that Aki Frazen had described, where people were almost like hypnotized. Well, she didn't see the, the eyes, but it was in the daytime. And she said that it was uh, the clouds were dark, it looked like it was fixing to rain, so she was going outside, and this is in the in the uh, TNT area, and uh, where her husband worked, and she was going ahead and uh, going to cover up some motorcycles that they had, and all of a sudden she noticed across in this field, across from the house, there was uh, a tall, dark figure, and she said she couldn't take her eyes off it. It was like you know she was hypnotized almost, mm-hmm. and. There was like this uh, strange noise in her head. Uh, uh, there was, um, she tried to to speak or scream or something at the time, and no words would come out of her mouth. And uh, she said this thing suddenly started running uh, like lightning, she said. That's how she described it. She said it was, it was far faster than a human could run. And all she could say, it was a human-looking figure. She later uh, decided that it must have been a robot or something, you yeah. know, because it moved so fast. But the thing that really disturbed her was how it just, like, took over her thinking, and she was, like, hypnotized by this sight and um, was unable to, to look away and unable to uh, speak, yell, you know, anything. One thing that Keel points out, which I think is very, uh, and, uh, I think at the time was very unusual point of view, was the window area idea, which... Uh, Really, only Jacques Vallée up to, that, up to that point had been talking about uh, what we today might might refer to as the multiverse or parallel worlds or or what have you. I think that that is was some very uh, advanced thinking on his part, and uh, that led into his discussion in the book of a lot of other things besides Mothman and UFOs taking place in that particular area, the Ohio Valley, uh, in the 60s when he uh, came on the scene. Um, we talked to people there who said that they, they, uh, 
the, their parents or they would have heightened psychic abilities all of a sudden. Uh, we talked with people who had uh, very positive Mothman experiences. They would, uh, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Mr. Colvin there, who's been uh, on the show several times. And oh, he, yes. he all of a sudden uh, was able to do math and became a, a rather brilliant artist after encountering Mothman. So all sorts of things and all sorts of ways were taking place. Uh, Kiel points out that, that uh, you could go out uh, to a certain place at night and, and watch the UFOs fly over, or you could signal to them, sometimes with lights, and they would signal back at times. So uh, that leads to the question of what are your thoughts on the flap, because you're a researcher yourself, on the flap area, as we call it, or the window area, as he called it, um, sort, sort of approach to the paranormal, sort of pan-paranormal um, Areas where things that are not traditionally associated with one another, ghosts, poltergeists, and the UFOs, for example, Bigfoot or whatever, Mothman, uh, do take place. What are your thoughts on that, Brent? Yeah, uh, there's so many, as you say that, there's so many ideas that, that, that strike me here. Uh, you know, there's, he connected like, uh, ancient Native American sites, uh, yeah. earthworks and, and such that, uh, that again and again, a lot of these events seem to kind of, uh, Conjugate around, concentrate, and and I know in visiting uh, some Native American sites that uh, people out here reports of of UFOs or strange balls of light appearing around these these areas, and um, I you know I think it's a good good area to approach. Now I was I was uh, talking with someone who was involved in the uh, investigation of the Hudson Valley oh yeah cases back in the the eighties and. Uh, and Dr. Heineck was involved in, in the investigation Jay of these Heineck, yeah. reports. Yep. And he says, we got these huge craft and, uh, you know, seen at night, flying low over these highways, hundreds of witnesses. Where's the hang of these things going? You know, where do they go to after they've, you know, made these spectacular appearances? And uh, he was also reported to have said, uh, you know, John Keel uh, talked about ancient... Uh, sites indian sites and such where um you know is there any place like that around here and uh they found an area where it seemed like it pinpointed a lot of the activity was concentrating you know it, it led them to this one area where there was this uh um an ancient site um that uh people reported seeing like hooded figures or balls of light uh around and um you know, it was kind of uh, something that made the uh, the investigators think, well, this, you know, maybe Keel was right, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I know I visited Heineck at his home in, in September 1972, and uh, I mentioned John Keel to him, and I was kind of surprised. He said, yeah, I find Keel's ideas interesting. Hmm. And, you know, he was, I noticed... In interviews and stuff, and people that got to talk with him would tell me, you know, he, he talked about other dimensions, you know, but uh, told us one woman uh, that met him at a conference in Brazil said he uh, he talked very openly about the possibility, but said that, uh, you know, it might kind of shake things up too much at the moment to talk too openly about it. So he was, you know, yeah, that and alien abductions, he was hesitant to really go into too mm. much. What about the, and you, you brought this up already, Brent, once, uh, what about the reliability of some of Keel's reports? Now, not, not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to him at all. I wish we'd gotten to know him. 
But um, as a journalist myself for 40 years, mostly in newspapers and magazines, one does tend to sometimes make mistakes under pressure of deadline or you have information that you later find out was not accurate. And as you said, he tried to correct that. Um, are people justified in uh, doubting the, not the veracity, but the reliability of, of all the reports, say from Point Pleasant, for example? Uh, that Keel uh, gave us. Yeah, in in there's a chapter where I I do uh, <clears throat> I think it's titled uh, John Keel's ups and downs, and and I, I I go into the things that he said that you know he tried to correct or uh, was beyond his control. The typesetters or editors had messed up, but you know when he he was asked by uh, one of his agents to come out with a book on the the Mothman, which became the Mothman prophecies, and. Uh, by that time, he'd kind of left all that, you know. He had moved on to other writing assignments, but uh, got convinced to go ahead and put something together. And he had all these notes and things in a suitcase, which uh, Doug Skinner, his friend now, has in his closet. <laughs> but um, anyway, he pulled all this out. And uh, one of the things that was definitely his, his era was the story of um, how he and Mary Heyer were out skywatching on one of the hilltops one night one of many nights, and um, Mary left him, and he was, well, let's see, uh, maybe maybe Mary was there. Anyway, he had read in, in some local paper that the moon was uh, supposed to appear um, sometime after 1 o'clock, and he stayed till about 3 o'clock and never did see the moon. So hmm. this got written up in his, his book. But the fact is that um, it did come up, and it came up a little after 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, he just didn't stick around long enough, and he didn't double-check uh, what he had read in that newspaper, uh, you know. So, yeah, that uh, that was on him there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of unfair to assume that everyone's going to be right all the time. Oh, of course. Especially, yeah. you know, in the field of journalism, because it's like, you know, if you're if you're making mistakes left and right, maybe you shouldn't be a journalist. <laughs> and, right. and I, f- <laughs> I fired more than one reporter because they, you know... Couldn't get their facts straight, right? But I think I think a really important note here um, that that Brent really kind of started off with 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 his book was 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 with the ethos of, and what we start off the the interview with was the ethos of of John Keel himself that he is by or was by nature or is whatever time doesn't matter, um, mm-hmm. you know that he's a skeptical guy, right? Mm-hmm. He establishes this this sort of thing like all right well you know all of this this stuff is happening you know let's investigate and see if it's true and he goes through the steps and you know he's from that old era of journalism which he would take with him into the new sort of paradigm era that he finds himself in in point pleasant west virginia so i mean you know you can kind of see in in the events of his life him kind of turning into a quote-unquote true believer but it's through his experiences that, you know, obviously something happened that would turn this man who was so skeptical into what he became. Well, the thing with journalism, you know, and, and jump in here, Brant, of yours, uh, and you can kind of see this happening with some of the people who uh, were associated with us, is that uh, you, you, you shouldn't become part of the story. Um, but when you start having experiences of your own, you kind of do become part of the story. You know, and, and that that can be a problem from a strictly journalistic sense. Mm. Um, you, you may be able to to write it, write about it 
in, in a more literate manner than some people might because you're, you have the experience. But um, I, I've always found that to be a problem. And most of my books about are my own experiences, and then books that you and I have written together uh, include our experiences too. So it can be um, a bit of a challenge that way. However, I, I, I've not written for any newspapers uh, except um, once about any of my cases. All the rest has been straight news mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Now, anyway, there we are. So uh, we, do we have a, another question from Peter while we have a moment here? Uh, we do. It's actually a pretty good one. This is a really good question. So uh, Peter uh, also asks, uh, what were John Keel's very last paranormal-related projects, finished or unfinished? Wow. Um, I'm not really sure. He had, uh, you know, he was having health problems at the time, and... and uh, I was trying to get him to do an interview with me, and he said interviews are a drag. You know, let's just talk. Uh, you know, so he he. In fact, it was a woman that had seen kind of a uh, had had a number of experiences, including uh, a gargoyle and a Mothman type thing. And she so so wanted to communicate with John Keel, and I asked him about it, and he said, "I don't have anything new to say, really." He said what I've said in the past and in past interviews. Just take one of those if you want and reprint it. You know, and. Uh, um, and so he, toward, toward the last of it there, he um, really wasn't doing anything. He really uh, wasn't able to get out and travel like he did. So uh, he felt that he had said everything that was to be said that he knew to say. And uh, I know at the end of it, he also wrote me, I sent him a copy of my first book, Visitors from Hidden Realms. And he, uh, he made the comment that um, he felt I had followed a similar path to his, you know, did, did my best to offer what insight and speculation I could to, uh, you know, to uh, address the phenomenon, but that in the end, no one knows for sure. Um, his was speculation. He speculated about the ultra-terrestrials, another yeah. parallel world, um, but he says, who knows, you know? Well, when, when we were in touch with him in, uh, toward the end of 08, he uh, wasn't doing any more interviews, but he was... Uh, he seemed kind of intrigued with us, and he was willing to talk. But then, of course, he, he got saved, and then we just didn't hear from him. It was a shame. You know, we should have gotten there a few years earlier, maybe. But uh, it is what it is. So uh, is there another question? Uh, there is. Uh, Peter's one... on a roll here. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, this is the final the final question from Peter. Um, and he writes to us, Brent, you have said in past interviews that you have gotten results with a ghost box. Uh, you or your associates recorded voices of what might be uh, extraterrestrials. Uh, please share the total communications recorded and the setting. For example, was a UFO being observed at the time? Okay, well, um, there was actually a, an abductee who was also a paranormal whisker. You know, when you've experienced a, uh, a UFO abduction or close-range sighting, a lot of times people develop psychic abilities or they... They, um, they've had psychic abilities since childhood. This particular person, Brett Oldham, uh, was still in the closet as far as being an abductee, but he was very involved in paranormal investigations, used an instrument called the Ghost Box, which is a, a digital radio you can get from Radio Shack and modify it where it goes on continuous scan. And, and uh, the, the idea is that um, the spirits can communicate through the white noise between the, the stations. Yeah, so anyway... So I was I was I was skeptical. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, you know, Brett had had experiences uh, going back to childhood, uh, 
about age five, he'd seen a ghost. At age five, he'd seen what he thought was a demon, but later realized um, it was a gray. And, um, you know, had different experiences, which he's written up in two books now, The uh, Children of the Gray and, and The Baby Takers. Um, but um, at that time, you know, this, we were involved in working paranormal together. And um, very first time I went to attended one of uh, these, uh, we were in a, uh, an old church that was supposed to be haunted, being used at that time as a uh, community art center, and it was um, it was nearly a hundred years old at the time. And we were down in the basement. People had heard footsteps, and nobody was there to make the footsteps and such. So we thought we'd do this this session. And I was um, sitting there thinking about you know this was like March of uh, 2010, and we'd lost John Keel July 3rd of uh, 2009. And uh, I thought, you know, what a what a what a shame! If there's anything to this, could you know, Keel say something? And uh, I didn't hear anything really um, that I could identify. And uh, then we went on another well, series of investigations. One was in May of uh, two thousand and, and uh, two thousand ten, and uh, this time. Brett had the ghost box, and we got a lot of interactive things going on. Uh, also, he said, there was John Keel right there. And then again, John Keel. And uh, I played the audio back, and sure enough, John Keel, John Keel. And and uh, one of the people that we talked to claimed to have seen Bigfoot. And so I was asked about Bigfoot, and a voice came back and said, monsters. <laughs> and I told, and I, I proved to... Uh, Proved to Brad, I says, look, later on, I, I, I met him again, and I says, here's my first letter from John Keel. He says he's writing an encyclopedia on monsters. He called Bigfoot and all these things monsters. And in, um, in his Strange Creatures from Time and Space, which was that encyclopedia-type book, he, uh, he actually um, starts out at Chapter 1 talking about Monsters. They call them monsters again. Yeah, he did. Yeah, that book is a sort of a bible for me since I was a kid. Maybe not a kid, but you know when I first got into this. And um, you know, um, so anyway, July third of two thousand ten, uh, we were meeting meeting at uh, the home of Sandy Nichols, who uh, claims to see ghosts and aliens himself and this house has been called the paranormal palace uh, just south of nashville little town community called thompson station he lives out uh out in a rural area and so we're doing a uh, ghost box session there and this is what you know convinced me at the time was uh asked for john keel and immediately a male voice says john keel and um brett asked him about bigfoot and this voice says, uh, and it was quite loud, and we recorded it, Smuck Bigfoot, see? <laughs> and, you know, um, and then I asked about uh, Jadu. What can you tell us about Jadu? And the others in the room really didn't know that much about John Keel, if, if anything. And this voice came back and said, uh, Jadu, and it sounded like, eh, Jadu, eh, and... Uh, I said, yeah, what can you tell us about Jadu? And this, this voice went on a long ramble, but it faded in and out. And it said, into the fire, into the fire, 
And then it went, blah, 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 you know, and I couldn't tell what it was saying, but we recorded it. And then it says, teach me outside. And uh, the way I analyzed it was, you know, kill, you know, I mean, it was Jadu meant in the Orient was a word for black magic. And into the fire, maybe that, uh, you know, related to, to that idea. And then teach me outside. To me, Keel was, he loved to travel and visit uh, foreign places or places where, you know, there was a story. Uh, not just reading it, but he liked to be a part of it, to be out in the field and actively pursuing like he did when he wrote the book, you know, later wrote the book, Jadu, those experiences he had in foreign countries. Um well, it was probably no way to tell. I remember we had a, a guest uh, who was uh, later disgraced because he said he went to Stanford. He didn't, but he was an expert in a lot of things, chemist. And um, I don't know, you, you, we used to get into some interesting discussions. You hadn't started to study uh, Ben um, Sound yet, but that, you went to school for that. The whole ghost box thing, I just had doubts. He said it was an AM signal that was being received, that, that uh, he could use and i went to ask him uh, does that mean the guy on the other side has an am transmitter i mean well our gracious our gracious station manager uh dave richards actually chimed in at one point um yeah. i think it was actually immediately after the show he came down he did and he was he he was talking to us for for a minute and he was like what we're doing right now is amplitude modulation am and i remember that conversation and, uh, was and I, was, I was like oh wow yeah, no, he's right. He's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and so I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, the guy over there was full of it because that doesn't is you know I, either way you know, you'd need to do some something physically would have to be happening to disturb yeah. the air molecules. Well, so, exactly. You know, you're just back at square one. So I don't know what Brad, Brad, that's probably no time to discuss that, but there is time for you to give us uh, websites, books, uh, where people can find out more about you, if you would please. And hold yeah, up the uh, book again, would you? Sure. Uh, it's available on Amazon, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's not just biographical. Uh, it's got biographical information about John Keel and his life, but also his influence on me, and that's, uh, it gave me an opportunity to kind of showcase a lot of anomalous stories that I've heard that, you know, I was looking at uh, areas that Keel would have looked at, and, uh, you know, the influence he had in other people and people who knew Keel and... Uh, had experienced things through Keel and such. And, and then uh, my online magazine, uh, Alternate Perceptions, actually started as a little um, four-page printed newsletter. It's back excellent, in by the way. And that's coming from an editor. Yeah, you send it to me. Uh, you always email it to me. I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, it was a para-ufology forum in the beginning. Now it's Alternate Perceptions, and uh, it's... Um, Comes out once a month online, first of each uh, each month, and uh, we're over 250 editions now, and uh, still going strong. Wow. <laughs> uh, but we have you know different features. It's apmagazine.info is the uh, the website, and people can also subscribe to a uh, little newsletter we'll send out telling what's in each issue. We have uh, various columns and. Uh, you know, submitted features, and we have letters to the editor and uh, uh, book reviews and so forth. So. Yeah, it's great stuff. Now, what about your other books? Uh, my first book uh, was uh, Visitors from Hidden Realms, which I just happened to have a copy ah. right here back, <laughs> okay. in, yeah. back in 2004. Uh, Brad Steiger wrote a, a great introduction there for it and uh, dealt with a lot of... Um, 
uh, UFO contact, uh, Native American, uh, shamanic uh, type information insights. And then uh, back in 2009, uh, this one right here, uh, the uh, on the edge of reality, and this was published by Tim Beckley mm-hmm. of the uh, of uh, Global Communications um, back in 2009. And it's it's a lot of the uh, the interviews that I had done over the years for in alternate perceptions, and just kind of reworked into this uh, this book. Great. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time, Brent. But Brent Rains, thank you for a fascinating conversation. We'll be in touch off the air. We'll do this again. All right. Well, thank you, Paul and Ben. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Okay. All right. I'll get to our announcement section here. And uh, all our planned spring events obviously have been uh, canceled because of the global pandemic. However, we are working, as we've been saying, on an online charity event, hopefully, uh, which we will probably do monthly um, for charities that are working to protect us in this bizarre time. Uh, We do hope that all this will be uh, blowing over soon and uh, that our fall events will be able to take place, particularly the Exeter UFO Festival and Labor Day weekend, September 5th and 6th, and uh, certainly uh, the... um, uh, that's at the Exeter Town Hall in New Hampshire. It's uh, one of our favorite events, and certainly the uh, Greater New England UFO Conference, which takes place on uh, Columbus Day weekend in October, uh, and that's going to be in Lemonster, Mass., and we hope that that will, will uh, be able to take place uh, uh, as well. Don't forget, uh, you're the key, the keynote speaker for that event as well. Oh, right, right, right. That's, honor yeah, that's my, kind of a big deal. <laughs> my long-in-the-tooth uh, 50 years on the paranormal, I guess that's the reason for that. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, look for us on the Travel Channel in October as well, and uh, we'll tell you more about that when the time comes. And don't forget to check out our books, BehindTheParanormal.com. You can find out all about all the books we have, and you can get them from various retailers as well, uh, but you can also... Get autographed copies from our online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. So what's going on next week, Ben? So next week, uh, for the next two weeks, actually, we'll bring you back-to-back open line shows. So that's May 3rd and May 10th, uh, because uh, we've been inundated with questions related to the current global health crisis and possible connections with some aspects of the multiverse and the paranormal with our famous guest co-host, Shane Searway. Yeah, it's amazing some of the questions we've gotten, but they're pertinent. Anyway, we'll leave you this afternoon with a quote from none other than John Keel. They are not from outer space. There is no need for them to be. They have always been here, unquote. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, I guess. <laughs> anyway. Wow, what a great way to end the show. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. Everyone be safe. Stay healthy. Uh, just do be, res- be responsible human beings. And we'll see you next time on... Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.